If you grew up in uh, Hickory, North Carolina, and uh, you are maybe under the age of 20, if you went and had any kind of party and or went to a party and or had a party and or had a field trip and or had a gathering at Buffalo Beals, raise your hand. Buffalo Beals. No, that's not Buffalo Bills pronounced with a Caldwell or accent or Avery County accent. Um, that is uh, Buffalo Beals, B-E-A-L-S, Beals. It is a giant petting farm, petting zoo, uh, kind of in Maiden. Uh, I'm not sure if it's open to the public right now, but uh, a few years ago when my, my kids were younger, my kids are 20 and almost 17 now, um, our, our kids, we would take them in. You could go pet any kind of animal. They, of course, they had African animals, and you could pet giraffes, and the giraffes have a tongue this big, you know, and it's kind of amazing. But then the part that everyone really loved was there was a part maybe about as big as this entire sanctuary in here where there was a true petting slash feeding zoo. And they would give you loaves of kind of almost, you know, we, we would call it the day-old bread or the out-on-the-way-out bread, and you'd buy some bread on the way in, and you'd go in, and you would just feed all these animals. And within this space right here, there were sheep, there were goats, there were some kind of more friendly burros, uh, there might have been some, even some geese or something like in there. There were mostly animals that wouldn't bite or leave much of a mark on your kid. Um, but you kind of like, you take your little kids, and, and they go in there, and you know, we're city slickers, we're not, we don't have cows or in, in whatever, but, you know, you kind of take them and hear the goats and hear the sheep, and you're just, you know, and of course, like, while your kid is feeding this sheep, all the other sheep are eating all the stuff, like, right out of them, but they're feeding these animals, and they're feeding them stuff right from their hand, and it's this neat experience, and they're petting them. The thing is, though, is the gate for that place opens right out into the parking lot, and so we were there for a birthday party, and our kids are taking their bread and going in, and they're feeding all these sheep, and they're feeding all the goats. And we turn, you know, because at a birthday party, you got the cake and the pinata and whatever else, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we turn around for just a second. I turn back around, and the gate is wide open. And every animal in that petting zoo is now emptying into the parking lot. Were you guys there? Oh, my gosh. So if ever you want to know if I'm making up these stories, you can ask the Elkins about details later on. We turn around, and every animal is coming out. Every, I mean, it's just like the ark when they landed on Mount Ararat, you know? I mean, like, everybody's coming out, and we're like, oh! And immediately, like, every episode of Lassie leaves your brain. Like, what would Lassie do? And you just don't know what to do. And then you do what the things like the stallions of the Cimarron, and you're out, like, running like this and trying to do that, and the animals are just like, yes, what, yes, what? Like, we're going to go see what's going on in Conover. And they just kept on going, and we're like, oh, my gosh, we wrecked Buffalo Beals. It's going to close down. Why? Cummings birthday party. As Stuart Scott would say, as cool as the other side of the pillow, out steps the lady from like the little, you know, the, the cashier house right there where you buy the bread and you pay your entrance into Buffalo Bills with like six loaves of bread. She is, she's walking like this, walks over to the gate and kind of does like this, and then takes the bread and just kind of throws it all back in the, in the pen and every last animal is like, that was good. All of them, without fail, not, not a single one ended up in Newton. They all, like, just all walked right back in. And we sat there and we're just like, this is amazing. All you need is food. Shepherding is something that when it's done well, it's just, it's seamless. And you know good shepherding when you see it, and you also know that you have no clue about shepherding when you watch somebody really do it. Well, shepherding in this context is God coming and he's talking about how shepherding is done bad. 
Ezekiel 34 obviously follows right on the heels of chapter 33, but in chapter 33, remember that the theme was, I am a merciful God that delights in showing mercy. Do you think I enjoy watching the consequences of evil catch up with people and then be destroyed? And so what he's saying is, you gotta realize, I am a merciful God, I'm a pursuing God, and here in verse 34, he's saying, if I'm this way in chapter 34, he's saying, you guys have to be that way. You shepherds, you missed, the, you missed your main calling. You're not being what I called you to be, and you're not being a shepherd. God is saying, I delight in showing mercy, yet my leaders don't show mercy. Now let's talk about shepherding just for a minute, because we'll take it in the context of what it means of serving people. Obviously, the, the, the phrase would be shepherd, but let's just let's come to a couple quick, quick assumptions about shepherding. One, bad shepherding has instantaneously disastrous consequences. Bad shepherding, the evidence of it is seen right away. Bad shepherding is devastating. Bad shepherding leaves scars. Bad shepherding leaves wounds. It doesn't necessarily even happen over years. It happens right away. And some of us are like, yeah, I'm a, I've been a victim of bad shepherding, or I've been a part of bad shepherding, or bad shepherding is terrible. Good shepherding, however, on the other hand, is really actually seen more in the long run. Good shepherding, there's so many things that a good shepherd would do as a literal shepherd or as a leader of people, a server of people, that go unnoticed. They're, they, you know, as the quote, to quote Bob, they're not sexy things. Uh, they're, they're not. They go unnoticed. And good shepherding, actually, when it is good and positive shepherding and, and Christ-like shepherding, sometimes just kind of looks like equilibrium. Everything seems to be working and looking as it should. And good shepherding often is shown in the long run, whereas bad shepherding is kind of just this instantaneous thing. So more than anything about this text, just about shepherding in general, we're going to be talking now about the good shepherd in this messianic, which means the foretelling of the coming of the Messiah, this messianic prophecy that's in here of God saying, I'm not going to be just sovereign here. I'm going to be sovereign among you. The mantle of shepherd will be on my shoulders, and I will shepherd with my hands. And so let's look at the text, and we're going to start out with verses 7 and 8. So 7 and 8 begins with God actually does the thing that he did back in chapter 33, which he swears by the greatest thing around, right? I mean, a Jewish person would have been like, I swear by the temple. And another person would have been like, oh, I swear by the gold in the temple. Well, God, if he's going to swear by the greatest thing around, swears by what? Or who? Himself. So God swears by himself. He swears by, by himself about the truth about who Israel's shepherds are and what they are like. Now, they would have been the leaders, the elders, and the priests. And what does he say about the priests, the leaders, the elders, those who were appointed to be shepherds? He says, my shepherds. You were my shepherds. Now, what does that mean? They were appointed by God. Now, think about this. If our governor is getting ready to put, on a, task, put, a, put a task force together to, uh, let's see, let's, what's, what's a task force that you could put together for Hickory? Figure out the stupid intersection by Allglass. How about that? The governor's task force on figuring out the stupid intersection at Allglass. And he sends a task force. He's going to be like, hey, I sent my people to you to help solve that problem. What does that mean? They were appointed by our leader for a purpose, for a plan, for a reason. And so he says, you're not just shepherds itinerantly. I put you in that position, and you forgot about this. You confused stewardship with ownership. That's what verse 8 is about. You confuse stewardship with ownership. Stewardship is whatever the resource is doesn't belong to you. You're just in charge of taking care of it. The ownership is someone else's. You act as if someone else owns it, and you take better care of it than you would your own things. That's what I was taught about stewardship. Now, ownership means that it's yours and you can do with whatever you want to. But we're not even talking about good ownership. That this, if, if, even if they had had good ownership of the sheep, they were like, well, these are my sheep, but I'm at least going to treat them good. Guys, we know about this. 
You know what bad ownership looks like? Bad ownership is the dude down the street from you that has the car that you like, but he proceeds to park it with the top down under the oak tree. Right? He never waxes it. He never washes it. He puts regular leaded, you know, gas in it. He, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't take care of it. And you're like, you're a bad owner. You don't even deserve that. Well, he's saying, listen, you're not even good owners. You're bad stewards. It's not even yours to own. You were taking care of something that belonged to me. And you didn't do it. You failed. You have sins of omission. That means things you didn't do. And sins of commission. Things that you did do that were wrong. You're bad owners. You put yourself over my people. The shepherd's needs were elevated over the sheep. And so we get to verse 9, and we get to verse 9, and verse 9 is a pronouncement of God's judgment. And he says, hear now the word of the Lord. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do because it's going to be a bringing of justice. How does this text end up? He says, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to feed you justice. So he says, I saw what you did. I saw the things you didn't do, and I did not miss them. I'm going to bring justice to you. And so then verse 10 he proceeds to then just take this language and go, Whew, oh my, and if you had been in these shoes, you should be shaking because he says, do you know what? You have now become my enemies. Those who steal from my people, those who hurt my people, and those who exploit God's very own, they have now become my enemies. And so what I'm going to do for you because you're my enemy, I'm going to take away the right. Notice that he says right. Another word for that would be privilege. I'm going to take away from you the privilege of serving my sheep. And not only that, my sheep that you thought existed for you, that you sheared their, sheared their wool for yourself, or you drank their milk for yourself, or you even slaughtered an ate from yourself, no more. You're not going to get rich off me anymore. You are now my enemies. And then in verse 11, we get the reaction then to the pronouncement of judgment. So now we get a pronouncement of prophecy in verse 11. Divine personal intervention is what comes in verse 11. He says, I am sovereign. Listen to now what the sovereign Lord says. But you and I, if we were to go back, you know, 2,700 years ago when this text was written, we would go sovereign. Yeah, God is sovereign on the throne. But this is what Paul is trying to drill down on when it comes to Philippians chapter 2. Because Christ is going to come and he's going to be sovereign on the throne and he's going to be sovereign on the soil. And he's going to be sovereign there and he's going to be sovereign here and he's going to be sovereign everywhere. And he is going to be the one who will... Take and not cling to his rights as God to sit on the throne, but come and take on flesh and dwell among us and be sovereign here too. So he says, I will be sovereign. I will be there and I will be incarnate on earth. And this is this foreshadowing of Christ. And then we get to verse 12. And Jesus, through Christ in this word, through God in this word, exposes his heart again, just as he did in chapter 33. Chapter 33 was, do you think I take delight in watching the wicked die? No. And in chapter 34, we see this again. My heart is exposed. My heart is to go find those who are lost, to go search for them. And then he uses the word rescue. To rescue is to leverage your strength to save. How many of you have ever tried to be saved by someone that couldn't save you? Yeah. I tried to do that one time when this lady's keys were locked in her car, and I thought that I could just take the coat hanger. This is when I was first married. It was at Appalachian. I was like, I'm going to roll up on this lady, and I'm going to save her. Her keys are locked in her car. And I just start like jamming this thing down in her car, and I think I just destroyed her like automatic windows on it. That's all I did. Like I didn't leverage any strength to save her, but God says, I'm going to leverage my strength. I will rescue you. And notice this text. Do you see an exclusion except for these people? Do you see... Do you see, except for, you know, do you see anybody that's barred from this? No, this is a boundless. And then we get to verse 13, and verse 13 is the hope for home. 
He says, and I will bring them home. Now, if you were Jews and you were reading this, you would have thought about the historical idea of all the Jews are going to come home and they're going to be not exiled anymore and they're going to be in Jerusalem. But we see this obviously in a bigger picture because this is greater than just Israel. This is our home in Christ, our home in him. John 14, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, a home to bring you back. Then in verse 14, we get this promised rest. Promised rest. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later on. But in order to grow and in order for a sheep to grow, they need rest. How many of you guys sprained your ankle before and you went to the doctor and they were like, look, here's how you're going to get it better. Go run about six miles in the morning, turn around in the evening, run about six miles. In between during that 12-hour period, hop up and down on that one leg. Right? In order for it to get well, in order for it to grow, in order for it to heal, you need what? Rest. My brother would say you need rice. Rest, ice, compress, elevate, you know, those are going to be the things. And so he says, I'm going to give you a promised rest so you can grow, so you can heal, and so you can become. And in verse 15, he gives this personal proclamation again. And we would hear the same thing in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. The sheep know my voice, and they respond, and I call them out by name. We would hear verse 23 again, I cause, he makes me to lie down and rest. And so in this verse, verse 15, God says through the text, I will cause them to rest. I will cause them to lie down. I will make them. I will give them divine care. And the part that you and I as sheep need to understand is the shepherd knows how to care for us better than we know how to care for ourselves. So there's a trust and a humility that goes on. And then finally, verse 16, he wraps it up, this part, and he does not talk about home. He doesn't talk about healing. He talks about restoration. Restoration. The shepherd, I will be the shepherd who restores. I will care for every single one of their needs. And yet, I'm going to say the same thing that Christ is going to say later on. Many who consider themselves first now will be last then. Many who consider themselves greatest now will be the least then. And God is saying, I will see and I will enact this judgment through the justice that I see. And those that have lived on my people and exploited them, I will feed them justice. What an incredible line. It's no, it's, no, it's no coincidence that Samuel L. Jackson, his character in Pulp Fiction, quotes from Ezekiel in the movie. Because what better line? I'll feed them. Oh, yeah, I'll feed them justice. Dirty Harry ain't got nothing on God. But let's talk about the shepherding. Let's talk about shepherding. Let's talk about sheep. Because there are places where our analogy is going to thrive, or the illustration is going to thrive, and then the illustration is going to die. But we need to come to this from this biblical text, and we need to figure out the first couple things about shepherding. And so this is where I am on the hot seat, or any pastor, or any leader, or anyone, as James says, not many of you should go and try to be preachers because it's a tough position. But let's talk about this. The first is this. Sheep thrive when their needs are made the priority. Sheep thrive when their needs are made the priority. And the parallel would be, for, many, for a lot of us, would be having a baby. How does it go if your needs are priority over your babies? They die, right? You know about that? Like, hey, you know what? The baby needs to be fed. Tough. I got, you know, Pokemon's on right now. I'm actually, I'm playing it on my phone. We need to stop and let the kids out. Nope. We need Sheep also thrive when their needs are made priority. So you can just imagine a shepherd going through a lush pasture land and being like, I don't know, I feel like stopping here. Sun's not the right angle. Leads him out of the beautiful pasture land into the desolate desert where the sun is just right. And the shepherd says, oh, this is the place we need to stop. This is the place we need to stop. This is where I feel like is good. This is best for me. 
Or if the shepherd's like, hey, you know what? I've got this much meal. I can either make bread for myself and my companions or feed my sheep. Nah, they can miss a day or two. Sheep thrive when their needs are made the priority. So in verse 8, where God comes and he's pointing the finger, he says, listen, in verse 8, you were appointed by me to care for my sheep, but instead you cared for yourself at the expense of the sheep. And as Bob said earlier this week, and I'll quote him, shepherding is not sexy. And a lot of people try to make it sexy. And to make, it, to make shepherding sexy is at the expense of the sheep. Because all of those behind-the-scenes things where you care and you do things that aren't elevated and you do things that no one else knows about are the priority of the sheep coming before yourself, are the priority of the sheep prior to the shepherd. And so in verses 15 through 16, he said, listen, where my shepherds failed, I myself am on a shepherd. And the reason why you and I, and this is the evangelistic kind of component of this, this is the part where I want to invite you into this. Why is God then a better shepherd than any person in the world? Why then, why then would we take God at his word when he says, I'm going to come and shepherd you, and it's going to be so much better, and you're going to be healed? Why? Because for one, God is supernatural. We get Psalm 50. I love it. David, the Lord says this through David in Psalm 50, verse 12. I'm God. If I was hungry, would I tell you about it? If I was hungry and in need of food, would I tell you about it? No. No, I don't need. And then he, as we're reflecting on God, David says in Psalm 121.4, we worship the Lord our God who neither sleeps nor slumbers. That means that the shepherd that we follow, the shepherd that shepherds us, is the ultimate caregiver because he himself needs no care. You've never had a caregiver like that in your entire life. I will never forget when Molly was born, we was right before I was interviewing for this job back in 1999, going into 2000, Danielle and I ordered Papa John's. That would have been the last time we ordered Papa John's for the next 10 years. Because we got food poisoning like I've never had food poisoning before in my entire life. And we had food poisoning with a brand new baby. And it was that kind of deal where you're lying in bed and you move. And immediately you're like, oh no. And you never felt more helpless as a caregiver because you could not care for the needs of another because your needs were so acute. And that's where we all are. That's why nobody in this room is ever going to be a perfect shepherd, a perfect caregiver, because we're never going to be a place where we have no needs. Now, when we serve the Lord, we absolutely put the needs of those that we're serving prior to our own. That's the code of being a shepherd. But the invitation in this, in verses 15, is that, 15 and 16, is I am the God who has no needs. What kind of caregiver, shepherd, do you think I will be? And so when God says the best shepherd can put his needs aside and attend to the needs of the sheep first or make them priority, he's saying, and watch me. Watch me do it. So if you've never been cared for before like that, I want to invite you to one that doesn't need you or anything. And he exists to be glorified by us and loved by us. The second thing is this. To be a shepherd, to be a shepherd is to be in a position of care and pursuit. Care and pursuit. It's to be in a position of care and pursuit. So when we look at verse 8, look how much this shows up in this text. He says this in verse 8. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, you abandoned my flock. You left them to be attacked. Although you were my shepherd, you did not search for my sheep. 
You didn't search for my sheep. You didn't search for them. There, there's this part. And then, then we get to verse 11. He says, now I'm going to qualify that about how, what kind of shepherd I am. So verse 11, he says, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will pursue. I myself will search and go find my sheep. Then verse 13 again, we get, we get it again. I will pursue them. I will bring them back home to their own land. I will feed them. I will take them to good places. So part of this, again, is to be a shepherd means to be one who pursues, one who pursues. Mostly, we pursue as our own kinds of shepherd. If we were to kind of say, all right, I'll, I'll just say for a second that I'm a shepherd. Okay, I'm a shepherd. Who do I pursue? We pursue very conditionally. We, as shepherds, pursue very conditionally. We pursue those that are easy to pursue. We pursue those that aren't too, too bad. We pursue those we like. We pursue those that are good-looking. We pursue those who have something that might benefit us later on. We pursue people that other people are like. We pursue people that people think are important. We pursue people that our society has put a stamp of approval on. But notice, when, as I said earlier, as we were reading it, when he says, I will go out and I will search for them wherever they are, even if they, wherever they have wandered away, notice that there is no conditionality put on where God searches, how he searches, and who he searches for. To be a shepherd means he pursues. The shepherd, as a part of identity, says, I will pursue you at all costs because that's what I do. Moms, there's never a point where, like, you know, you're spoon-feeding your baby and someone says, why are you doing this? You look at them and go, ask me one more stupid question. I'm going to put this foot upside your head. You don't even have to say, because I'm their mom. You just go, because they'll die if I don't. Well, a shepherd's like, I pursue. That's what I do. I pursue. Now, I want to take this into context of how we pursue people in terms of building the kingdom. So in this part, who are the shepherds in this? We are. We are the shepherds in this. So I want to tell you about an island. Y'all, some of you guys might have seen this island on an on a ungodly, terrible show called Survivor. If you watch that, I'm praying for you guys. Who watched that, by the way? I'm praying for y'all. Just kidding. Um, but Survivor, and Survivor had an episode on an island nation called Vanuatu. Did anybody remember this? Anybody seeing that? Vanuatu is a very interesting place, and we just saw the beach, and you know, I'm sure we think everyone on Vanuatu is sitting on the beach right now with a Mai Tai, you know, fanning themselves, watching surfers. In Vanuatu, they speak a language called Bismail. And there is missionaries that go to Vanuatu, and they have to translate the Bible into this language. For us, y'all, you can call it the language of Vanuatu because it's easier to pronounce. But I'm going to share with you one thing. This is the word for piano in Vanuatu. Are you ready? This is the word. This is how they say piano in Vanuatu. Piano. Him want a big fella black book as him got a wyatt toot him, him he got black to super to kill him and him he sing a real good. That's the word for piano. How many of y'all like the word of piano a lot more now? One more time. Piano. Now in Vanuatu. Him want a big fella black book as Hemi got Wyatt toot mot. Hemi got black toot sippos. You kill him and Hemi simmasinga. Oh, good. There are people right now that are called and are doing and are translating the Bible into Vanuatu. How do you translate transubstantiation? What about substitutionary penal atonement? 
Like, they're still working on that word now. They started at the beginning of the sermon. We're about to get to it. Most of us, when seen with that level of sheep to pursue, would say what? Not worth it. There are easier sheep to pursue. There are lesser hurdles to jump over. There are greater pools of low-hanging fruit. There are more and different and easier for me and likable and not so crazy things as people in Vanuatu. But praise God that there are people that are like, nope. The good shepherd doesn't just pursue. The good shepherd pursues. And so therefore, in following along, like chapter 33 follows chapter 34, I also will pursue barring conditions. No conditions. Because who does this good shepherd pursue? The good shepherd pursues. Verse 16. When we get to verse 16, we have to come to this and we have to say, praise the Lord. Because he has a blessed, tedious nature to his ministry. I stay away from tedious things. I stay away from tedious things, a pox upon me, because our Lord pursues even the most tedious. The people that have piano, that the word piano is this long, he knows their language, and he is pursuing them through people who know our language. Pursue if you're a shepherd. Ezekiel 34, again, is a reflection back on chapter 33. 33 is, don't you know that I am merciful? And we reflect in Micah, I delight in showing mercy. So for a shepherd, mercy is not a concept. But shepherd's mercy, so you can look at a flock, shepherd's mercy and the giving of, a mercy, giving of mercy and grace by shepherd is evidence in the shepherd's cohesiveness of flock. I'll say that one more time. When a shepherd truly understands that they are a vessel of mercy, so this is moms and dads, you're shepherds of your family. If you lead a Bible study, you're their shepherds. If you lead a small group, you're their shepherds. If you lead a Sunday school, you're their shepherds. If you're working for a church, whatever. If you run a business, if you're the shift manager, if whatever, if you're the team leader in your group at work, if you're the team captain, you can consider yourself the shepherd of that. A shepherd's use and gift and giving of mercy and tenderness and grace is evidenced in the sheep's cohesion. That means stick togetherness that the sheep has. Love what verse 15 says this, and this is, this is the beautiful part, and this is where I begin, I want you to begin to think not of just Christ as the good shepherd in this, you know, Jesus saying this in the John 10, 10, I'm the good shepherd and I cause my sheep to lie down, they all men in my name, I've come to give them life and life abundantly, and we think of that as a spiritual thing, but I literally want you to think about Jesus as having been a shepherd for 12 men for three years. So if you think about that and you read verse 15, he says, I myself will tend to my sheep I will cause them to lie down in peace, says the sovereign Lord. I know a little bit about this. I tried to cause sixth graders and seventh graders and eighth graders and ninth graders to lie down this past Friday night. It did not work. Why? Evidently, I'm not good at giving mercy. Okay, that's the number one. I'll just call that. But this group of people is like, I'm not lying down with them. I mean, you got your own bed. I'm not like asking you to like, you know, what? No, I'm not. I'm going to sleep in this room. I'm going to sleep in this room. I don't want to lie down. You know? The good shepherd's like, hey, all together, we'll go lie down. Preschool teachers, you do that. And we sit crisscross applesauce now, you know. There is this cohesion, and the more cohesive a group is, because of the giving of mercy and grace, the more togetherness there is. And the shepherd can care give the sheep, and they do it together. 
Now, if you don't believe me about Christ and how he gave the example of a, of a good shepherd, I want you to think now about his 12 disciples. I want you to think about his 12 disciples. What does it say in John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying before he's going to go to his death on the cross? He says, Lord, thank you for these men. They are yours, and, you, and I have taken care of them, and I did not lose a single one of them except for the one who was destined for destruction. You have given them. I have given them back to you. Now you've given them to me so that they are my glory, but I want to get back to that one part. You gave them to me, and I did not lose one of them except for the one destined for destruction. So let's talk about those 12. Number one, you got Peter. Can't shut up. Cannot shut up. Some of y'all have a Peter in your group, and that's it. You can't, you, you don't want it any matter who else in your group is. You got, I got a Peter, I can't shut this dude up. Okay, that's great. Secondly, Jesus had a Matthew. Matthew screws over his own people to serve the government and gets rich off of them. Well, That'd be all good, except for that you also have Simon the Zealot who hates the government and wants to overthrow it. Think about the most diehard Republican and Democrat being in your small group with each other. And then the beginning of it, there's someone that says, I can't believe Trump said this, and you're like, well, I can't believe Pelosi, and all of a sudden they're like, and then you haven't even cracked up in the Bible, and they're like, and here we go, you know what I mean? There's Matthew and Simon. And they're having quiet times with each other. Goodness gracious. And if that wasn't enough, then you had two goody-two-shoe holy rollers in James and John. All the rest of the people are like doing this stuff, and James and John are like, hey, Jesus, these other fools are stupid. Whenever we get in your kingdom, me and John, we're going to sit like left and right. We haven't decided who's going to be who, because I want to know like which hand like your big like pimp cup is in. So whoever that is, we're going to, you know, that, I mean, like, and they're like, yeah, we're all better. And then the other disciples find out about it, and they're like, we're going to kill you guys. Bam! You know? And Jesus has to come in. How many did Jesus lose? None. Except for the one destined for destruction. None. And so when we look at why, we come back to this point that when a shepherd is a vessel and a giver, I'm trying to wrap up the sermon. He's texting me, hurry up. No, it's not. It's Jesse Sloan. He's in Indianapolis. He knows we're in church right now. A shepherd gives, and a shepherd does not have favorites, except for that they're all his favorites. A shepherd doesn't have pains, except for they're all his pains. You ever have that person in your family? Everybody's like, man, that dude's an idiot. And you're like, they're my idiot. Talk about them like that. A shepherd is a purveyor and a giver of mercy, of tenderness, and grace, and it's evidenced by the cohesion of their group. And then finally, let's just have some quick ones. The sheep analogy works really well. The shepherd analogy works really well. It thrives, and yet it falls apart. So here are places where it thrives, and here's places where it falls apart. Number one, sheep don't need to work at humility and dependence. We do. You don't have to tell a sheep, hey, be more humble, be more dependent. A sheep is like, that's who I am. I'm humble and I'm dependent. It's who they are and they know it. And so when you see David's heart being exposed, as we read in Psalm 23, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why? I'm dependent on him. He makes me lie down. I don't do what I, I, don't do what I think I ought to do. I follow the shepherd. I'm humble and I'm dependent on him. Sheep know this. We don't. We need to remember. Second thing. 
This is where the sheep have a disadvantage. Sheep don't know that they exist for the shepherd. They just live. C.S. Lewis has a great, uh, great, some great talking points about this as he talks about the relationship between animals and people. They don't know, they just live. Sheep don't know that they exist for the shepherd. They do know that they belong to the shepherd. That's why in John 10 he says, he says, I call my sheep and they know my voice and I call them out by name. They know they belong, they don't know that they exist for. Here's where you and I need to be better. We know we belong to Christ and secondly, we know we exist for him. We don't exist for ourselves. We don't exist to be our own shepherds. We exist for the shepherd, and we belong to him. And third, we will never grow like sheep will never grow. We will never grow in him until we rest in him. Something about sheep and farm animals, did you know they have multiple stomachs? Especially this works with cows. But do you know there's a, there's a reason why cows and other sheep, they have to lie down? Because they truly, actually, they can't even digest their food unless they rest and a lot of us, actually, we work like this in our Christian walk. In our Christian walk, we move from crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis to running, to never stopping, to running, to moving, to on the go, to crisis, to on the go. And we never rest in the Lord. And therefore, we are arrested in our development. Again, just like I was talking about having a sprained ankle earlier, you got to rest so that it can what? Heal. So that what? The tendons and things can grow back. Until you and I can rest in the Lord, we will never grow. And here's the part where we come back about the Lord neither hungers nor does he sleep or rest. In Psalm 3, 5, and this is, this is my psalm, this is my verse because I don't sleep worth a darn. But Psalm 3, 5 says this, I lay down and rest. And though thousands were around me, I woke up in peace for you watch over me. I don't know about y'all, but I would lie down and rest in the presence of the Lord. Who, whom shall I fear? This is what we say. You will never grow until you rest in the Lord. And until people that don't rest in the Lord, they're trying to take it and arrange it for themselves and do it for themselves, shepherd themselves, guide themselves, work on themselves, do all this for themselves. And the sheep knows that they are dependent, knows that we as sheep know that we exist for the Lord, and third, we know that we can rest in him. So if you've never been given care from someone that doesn't need care themselves, if you've never rested in the not even closely penetrable arms of the Lord, and if you've never known what it's like to be shepherded by the one who left heaven and did it, got his hands dirty, the invitation is still here. Come and be shepherded by the King of kings and the Lord of lords that made you such the priority. Remember what I said? Sheep thrive when they are made the priority. You were made such the priority that the shepherd went to the cross for our sins. That's how much our shepherd walked what he talked. So I'll just give you a moment to respond to that, and then we'll close in our time of worship.